0: comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Alifair Burke is the author of Find Me, a novel. She is a New York Times best-selling author whose most recent novels include The Better Sister, The Wife, optioned for a feature film by Amazon, and The X, which was nominated for the Edgar Award for Best Novel. She's also the co-author of the best-selling Under Suspicion series with Mary Higgins Clark. She currently serves as the president of Mystery Writers of America and is the first woman of color to be elected to that position. A former prosecutor, she now teaches criminal law and lives in Manhattan and East Tim. Welcome, Alifair. Thank you so much for coming on Momstone of Time to Read Books to discuss your latest Find Me. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Could you please tell listeners what your novel is about? Yeah. So the main character of um, Find Me, it's really two women. One goes
1: missing. Hope Miller moves out to East Hampton, leaves a small town in New Jersey um, where she's lived for 15 years, and she decides she wants to go someplace, have a little more anonymity, a little more independence. She moves out to East Hampton, and within a few weeks, vanishes. And her best friend, Lindsay, Uh, Kelly is determined to find her. So find me is kind of literally a search for hope in the present. But one of the many interesting things about hope is part of the reason why she wanted to leave this small town where everybody knew her for the last 15 years is she suddenly appeared there after a major car accident and was found at the side of the road, presumed dead. She survived her injuries, but when she came to at the hospital, she didn't know who she was why she was there, where she was from. She had no idea and no cash. And it turned out the car that she was that she wrecked was um, a stolen car. And that's really all she knew about herself. So when she disappears, the search for her is a little complicated by the fact that she doesn't really have a past. So it's not just a search for her in the present, but also kind of turns into a search for her true identity.
0: I mean, what you just said, the search for hope in the present, is that that like a double entendre?
1: (laughs) Well, her name, so she had to pick a name for herself in this little town uh, that kind of takes her in. It's called Hopewell. And so she's like, well, I guess I'll. I'll just call myself Hope, you know, because people have been calling her Jane Doe. Some people sort of started calling her Hope. So it kind of, the name stuck, but yeah, whatever. It is sort of a search for Hope, maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: it's an Interesting time to write a book like this, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I found it interesting in the book, actually, when you're talking about her assuming an alias and everything that only, and maybe this isn't even true, but it was in the book as fact. So I'll, I'll assume it's fact that there were only three cases, three recorded cases of somebody trying to who had, who didn't know their identity, trying to file and like basically assume a new name legally. I'm not saying that very well, but like there was somebody who was a baby who was left on the stoop and this fictitious hope who, right.
1: Yeah. And a homeless person. So those, that is actually, I don't know that three is the right number, but it's, In the book, it's that there's only three in New Jersey, but it is true that it's incredibly difficult to establish a new identity. I mean, you and I could go change our names. That's fine. But then there'll be kind of almost like a chain of custody, right? You'll know that the person who changed her name to X used to be Y. To just create a new identity when you're not able to say who you used to be is close to impossible. And the reason for it is, if you think about it, there's very few people who would have a need for that, right? Right. It would be a person who showed up either too young or nonverbal or with amnesia, like to know to be able to say who they were. and then the potential for fraud is limitless. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> because of that, there's really no incentive no institutional incentive to set up a way to create a new identity from scratch. But what I found more interesting is you know for people who don't know my work, I used to be a prosecutor. I'm, a law professor, and I would have just thought, given what I know, like there's a missing persons database, right? There's also a database of people who are found dead and who are unidentified, right? Like that's a separate information pool. But there's nobody who, there's not even a way to put yourself into a database if you are alive but unidentified. And, and that's when they said that New Jersey had actually started a database for that, but there was hardly anybody in it, including her.
0: <laughs> so. It's like, uh, did you ever see the movie Overboard in the 80s you know, with Goldie Hawn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, I like, loved that movie. B- bumps her head, doesn't know who she yeah. is. For a lot of- yeah. <laughs> it would be like if she just like you know, went roaming in and trying to establish a new name for herself. Right, like, I'll just get a social security number. Yeah. You
1: know, it sounds kind of tropey and it doesn't kind of sound like either a wacky comedy or like this big soap opera or anything. But I think why, I think the reason why amnesia works in the book as a plot device it's all because it's in the past right i mean she went through this 15 years ago and the moment of trying to frenetically search for who is this woman has anyone does anyone recognize this face like at some point when that didn't work it makes sense to me that it you might just have to focus on the present, right? right? And many of us do that figuratively, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever garbage we have in the past, whatever baggage we have in the past, at some point we decide enough is enough. I'm not going gonna, gonna to stop wringing my hands about that, shut the door on it, and put one foot in front of the other until you have a new life again. And she's had to do that literally, right? She didn't, and, and involuntarily. Right? That, that door was kind of shut for her and has decided to go on her way and makes her way just fine with the help of this town where she doesn't need to have a driver's license because everybody kind of understands why she doesn't have one. She has a job under the table. She has this nice family that lets her live in their garage apartment. So she's kind of just made this life work, but you know, she was either a late teenager or early 20s. I mean a very young woman when this started and now she's thinks that she's in her mid-30s, you know, and has still kind of been living her life in limbo. So this was supposed to be a fresh start. But and there's it might not the have question. gone as may not have gone as planned. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there's also the question: Is she? Did she really have amnesia? Did she make up her own identity? We don't know, and we only know it right. from mostly from Lindsay's point of view, her friend. But there's always that big question mark: Are the journals really what she wrote, or did she make it all up? Yes. Or you know, and, once you start yeah. reading your book, you never know. Like, what do we believe? What do we, what is true? What is not? So yes. it, yeah, it adds to the mystique.
1: Well, and I'm glad that you mentioned that the reader gets to know Hope primarily through Lindsay's eyes. But Lindsay has her own point of view, too. I mean, their their friendship was forged in this very unusual way where um, Lindsay is actually the one who found Hope thrown from the overturned um, SUV that turned out to be stolen. And she's also like around the same age. She had just graduated from college. She's driving home. She finds this overturned car. Um, and literally saves this young woman's life, which if you think about this, that happens to you when you're 22 years old, that immediately gives her this purpose, right? That then, And when Hope wakes up at the hospital and doesn't know who she is, Lindsay kind of decides to become her person and doesn't leave her. And so the two of them have this really com- <laughs> entangled relationship and where they're arguably even kind of codependent on each other. And it's not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising to the reader that that Lindsay knows like at some cellular level that Hope would not lie to her mm-hmm. um, and that Hope would never just ghost her or, or start over again without her. But you, the reader comes to learn, and it's not a spoiler, that other people who know these two are kind of like, you know, maybe Hope was over it. Like maybe yeah. Hope really fe- was feeling a little too smothered by this, or maybe she's, you know, playing the long game and you know, maybe there were doubts there all along. So hopefully um, it's
0: a good twisty little mystery. Yes. Particularly, um, Lindsay's boyfriend, who's kind of like, okay, great. Now Lindsay's gone. Can we please move things along here? Right. (laughs) Like enough with that. I think he was a little disappointed that she's driving back and forth to the Hamptons from New Jersey. Yeah. 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 Where
1: I think a lot, I've had a lot of female readers tell me that even though their friendships don't involve amnesia and overturned SUVs and stolen cars and missing people. But I think that a lot of women will recognize their female friendships in this book and the way that maybe the people outside of those friendships, including people like boyfriends and husbands are sort of like, what is it? Like, why, you know, like, why is she allowed to talk to you like that? And I'm not like, why would you drive across the country for her and not me? Uh, You know, almost like this kind of jealousy or seeing it as somehow threatening to their relationship. And when Lindsay is willing to kind of drop everything for hope, you can tell her boyfriend is a little bit of pushback there.
0: I like also how you have Lindsay's dad is the head of police in her town and knows everything. And here she is, the lawyer, and then she gets to check in with him on all the stuff, right? Like, <laughs> what what database did you use? What did this even mean? You know, give me the lay of the land, right? So here he yes. comes in as this total expert, and she's this, you know, sort of hustling little lawyer trying to figure everything out and use everything she knows, which, to the dismay sort of, of the other Police force in the town.
1: Yeah, 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 I love. I like to play with point of view, and yeah, when she goes to East Hampton looking for her friend and meets a let's let's just say skeptical police officer. When he starts hearing about amnesia, he's rolling his guys eyes, going, "Yeah, no." But it's interesting to look at Lindsay through his eyes, where he's immediately like. Lawyer, gotta be a lawyer. (laughs) But Lindsay's really smart. At some point, she says, you know, there's formal law and then there's the way stuff actually works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she knows how to try a case. You know, if there's motions that need to be filed, she can write them. But when there's no case file and there's nobody being prosecuted and she's just trying to get police to do something, she realizes she really doesn't have the power to do that formally. But she's kind of clever enough that she figures it out.
0: Well, I love that you have this set at a home that was being prepped for an open house in the Hamptons because I've probably been to like 8,000 open houses in the Hamptons. That was like my favorite thing to do with my kids too on the weekends. I'm like, who wants to go to an open house? It's so bad, but I, there was like nothing I enjoy more. So I love it. Like your book. And I don't know if you know of um, Open House by Katie Sice, which is like an Amazon no. seller, which is set in an open house. And it oh, also kind of it. reminded me of like Roman alums, like in the Airbnb, you know, I don't know. There's like this whole. no, thing.
1: I'm, I'm- I'm very fascinated by real estate. I like call my real estate porn. You know, I just like, yeah, I have all these lists set up Zillow searches and places I don't even live. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> I I'm still getting like, and... I'm
0: getting like key Biscayne listings. I'm like, why? Like, because I think yeah, one yeah. day I was like, maybe we should move to Florida. <laughs> Mine is CS to Key. I keep looking at listings in <laughs> Siesta <CS to> Keys. <laughs> so funny. Oh my gosh. i probably looked at more houses online than I don't even know. It's really it is cool. very
1: funny. So, uh, since you're talking about, so the Again, not a spoiler. The prologue is set where Lindsay finds a jo- uh, sorry, Hope finds a job out in East Hampton with this kind of sketchy realtor working under the table helping him set up open houses. And, um, but she refers to this house as like not being a really great house. It just has yeah. a really good lot and somebody yeah. would probably buy it for two million dollars and tear it down. By the time the book came out, it's like, oh, it would be more like three and a half.
0: Honestly, I read that and I was like, there is no way you could get a six bedroom south of the highway in Sagaponack <laughs> for that amount of money. No, and, I no. know. And I'm thinking, it must be a teardown. And then then it comes out and you're yeah, like, well, yeah. oh, it does it, need a lot of work. I'm like, even, but two acres? No, no, I don't no. know. Yeah. I, yeah, I yeah, think yeah, it yeah. would go for no. more.
1: <laughs> By the time the book came out, it's like, oh, uh, it's probably closer to four. Yeah. But that's the kind of like, money, that's like sick money that you can't start putting. If Like, you know, people not from New York reading no, these know. books and yeah. it will not sound credible to them at all. That yes, no, $4 I $4 million dollars for a house to tear it down,
0: yeah. even though people do that. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I understand. I thought it was really funny though. So you've written so many books and you've become such a success. You're like master oh. of the genre. How do you approach each book like at this point and your whole career of writing? Because I feel like once you become a certain, I don't know, Echelon of of this is like this can be your job full time. You can do it, even though you're a law professor as well. Like, how do you approach it? How do you just like keep basically how do you structure your writing life as a career and all of that? Yeah. It's
1: it's it makes it sound really simple, but it's in theory, you write a little bit every day and you have a book in a year. <laughs> I've not, particularly the last couple of years, haven't been as great about it. There are too many days where I'm like, I'm just gonna sit and look at this TV all day and then you got to make up for it later. But in general, I still kind of just try to, it's, you know, just a little bit of time, but I do, I think over time, I've become a little more of a plotter, as they say, instead of a pantser. Like I, I think things out a little more thoroughly before I start writing than I used to. And I think part of that to be is when, um, I authored six novels with Mary Higgins Clark before Mm -hmm. she passed away. And we both were Like We were just kind of like, oh, I have an idea and I think I've got these good characters and I'll just start writing. And if it means a lot of rewriting, so be it. But we can't do that with two of us, right? (laughs) Two people can't just make stuff up by the seat of their pants and both be working on it at the same time or we (laughs) wind up with two completely different books. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She decided that person did it and I decided the butler did it. It's (laughs) not going to work. So we really had to sit down and think through all the characters, what define them, what their motivations are, what are their secrets, what are the tensions, what are the desires, and then how does that spiral out of control, right? How? Do, what situation pushes those pressure points to the point that they can't withstand the pressure anymore? And then what happens to whom and how is it going to unfold? And if you talk through all of that stuff before you start writing, it's amazing how much more sane the writing <laughs> process is so I'm I'm a little more structured now in terms of kind of knowing the big big beats and the character arc and what everybody's kind of searching for before I start writing and at that point you just kind of pluck off little pieces of it you know I'm going to try to get the, these two scenes done today next you know kind of know but two weeks from now I want to hit this point you know and kind of work work it backwards but it doesn't make it sound very sexy, but. <laughs>
0: oh, no, that's all right. Where do you, are you a post it all over the wall person? Is it all in a Google Doc? Like, what's your process? I was a cork board and index card person. Okay. And now I have, I
1: have, a, now I'm not in my office right now, but in my office, I have a very, very, very large whiteboard. And that is kind of my my bible. And I even like before I travel, I will take pictures of my whiteboard and kind of use it to like re- eyes eyes on the front, like describing this one little thing right now. But by the end of the week, try to get to this point. You know, <laughs> kind of move keep things moving. And I think that that moving to that structure of kind of ha- having goal points and knowing, you know, I want to get to there by. 40,000 words or something like that. I think that my books have become shorter and also quicker. Like there's mm-hmm. just, there's not a lot of stuff there that doesn't need to be there. So <laughs> I, I think they're quick reads. I, I think if you could, I love my early books too, but I think with my early books, I was kind of like, I don't really need to know what I'm going to write two days from now because right now I'm just going to write the hell out of this. <laughs> um, and sometimes, it, you know, lots of neat details and things like that, but I don't
0: know if the story moved quite as fast. Interesting. I love it. Okay, we can't Or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. Well, tell me about how you became a writer and a lawyer and when these two paths intersected in your life and maybe the influence of your dad, who's also a crime writer, on your career trajectory and all of that. Yeah, I, I've
1: kind of got the opposite story of you know, there are a lot of people who out there who are like, oh, I would have loved to have been a writer or an artist, but my parents told me to be a lawyer or a doctor. <laughs> my ta- my dad told me to be a writer, so I became a lawyer. <laughs> 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 um, so my my father's a writer. My father's James Lee Burke, and I was always, you know, as a little kid, my mom is a librarian. She would take me to the library every weekend to get a new stack of books and i realized now she was just trying to get me out of the house so that my dad could write <laughs> i was the youngest kid in the family and but i i loved to read and i would you know i'd see my dad i see that typewriter back there i would see my dad writing books on his manual Royal typewriter. And I would go in, you know, and write little stories and he's like, Oh, you're going to be a writer. You're going to be writer. And you know, everybody rebels against their parents, even if they're telling you something great, you know, maybe they had told me go party and do drugs. I would be like, no, don't do it. Do the opposite. So I was like, no, I don't want to be a writer. It's not practical and and so, but I always did share a fascination with crime. I was always fascinated by crime and I think part of that is I don't know if you know this I grew up in Wichita Kansas mm-hmm. and there was a there was a serial killer active when I was a kid like when we first moved there I was like oh so you moved me to a place that one doesn't have an ocean and two does have has a serial killer <laughs> thanks mom and dad this is a great place but you know, I think where a lot of parents would have protected their kids from that news and, you know, turned it off when the gory stories came on. My parents had no problems like me knowing all the details and my father and I would like sit around and like, I must've been in junior high. And like, we would talk about who we thought he probably was. And, you know, we thought he was a student at Wichita state because a letter was found there. So I was always really interested in crime. So when I went to law school, I actually went for one purpose, but I I loved criminal law, I loved my criminal procedure cases, and so I wound up being a prosecutor and I started out as prosecutor in Portland, Oregon, and I'd go to Powell's bookstore, mm-hmm. which you might know, yeah. and just kind of load up on paperbacks of mysteries and that was kind of my, you know, nighttime reading and weekend reading. And before too long, I kind of became yet another lawyer with an idea for a book. (laughs) And I thought, you know, someday I'll write it. Um, And when I moved to New York and started teaching um, as a law professor, I had a little more time. I'm like, I'm going to write that book. Um, And so I thought it would be one book uh, and I'd have it on my, you know, Shelves with all my nonfiction books. Professor Burke wrote a book one time, and when they sold, my agent sold it. He called me. He's like, "Well, the good news is, you know, lots of people are interested." And he's like, "He goes, but a lot of people want to know if it's a series." And I was like, "Do they want it to be a series?" <laughs> he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." This was back when everybody wanted a series, you know. And they're all like, "Yeah, they're assuming it's a series." They're like. Then, yes, yes, it's a series, and I can totally do this again. I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? Like, so I had to go tell, you know, I was an untenured law professor, I had to go tell my dean, I was like, so I wrote this book and now I'm going to promise to write another book, but I can still do everything and I can still be a scholar and he was like that's awesome. Everybody wants to write a book. Like he was very supportive. I was like, "Oh, thank God." So I'm, <laughs> I'm still at that law school. I'm still a law professor, but I, you know, it's been my first novel came out since 2003 and when you were saying like you, you know, you're a a known author and you clearly have a career as a writer. I was like, do I? I'm like, <laughs> I don't know at what point it starts to feel real. I'm like, it still feels like two books at a time for me. But yeah, at this point, I guess I'm an, am an actual established writer, I suppose, even though it really does sound odd to hear myself described that
0: way. <laughs> That's the great thing about interviewing authors all the time. Like nobody has, I mean, any... does
1: anybody, no, does no, anybody but... feel like that? I don't think so.
0: I mean, Maybe Nicholas Sparks, <laughs> <laughs> John Grisham is probably pretty convinced that he's a successful
1: writer. <laughs> Everyone else I know is still kind of like, "How long is this going to last?"
0: You know. Yeah, I think self doubt, anxiety, all of that is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like the the work jacket, you know, like a like the paleontologist puts on like the the special outfit. I feel like that's the jacket that
1: <laughs> authors Yeah, I'm a, I and I don't worry about us cuz uh, to me that seems normal. I I worry about the debut authors who are like, "I got it made." I'm like, "Oh, wait."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Yeah. There's always a new a new hurdle. There's always
1: right? a new challenge. Yeah. yeah.
0: Before I was like even remotely in this industry and just a recreational reader and lover of books. I was like, well, the be all end all is to just have a book, you know, come out. Yeah. Like, that's it. That's the goal. Full stop. But then it's like, well, but I want it, you know, in the bookstore. Well, I don't just want it in the bookstore. I want it over here in the bookstore. And <laughs> I don't just want it out. I want it to do well. And then I want there to be another book. And then, well, I don't know. It's like the, the goal oh, I know. are always moving. It can be very
1: unhealthy. It can be yeah. very unhealthy. I saw, I wish I could credit it to the right person. Some nice person in writer Twitter the other day said something like, just remember what someone else's book is doing has nothing to do with what your book is doing. Like yes. your writing career is your own and it is successful no matter what other people yes. are doing, right? Just Absolutely. kind of remember what your original dream was. Yeah. Anyway, I found the, it.
0: There was that A nice um, little reminder. Anthology about not anthology, but that like yeah, it was kind of an anthology for Dorothy Benton Clark that a bunch of women authors had. I can't mm-hmm. remember what it was called something about that, but there was one funny scene. I think by like, now I'm forgetting all the details, but anyway, it's about two authors meeting in heaven, and they were like, "But I still never got that number one New York Times bestseller." <laughs> and it's like, I know, can you believe it? I was number three, and I just never got there. I'm like, "Are is that even a thing?" That's, are people worried about that? It's definitely that? a thing. Oh my gosh. I was like, I can't even, I can't (laughs) even believe. It's just so funny. But anyway, (laughs) I guess you just never know. So what, what books are coming next? Are you done with your next book? You must be already. I am about done with it. Just why I was reminding myself like too many days sitting on that couch. I am writing a sequel
1: to Where Are the Children, which is something that uh, Mary Higgins Clark and I had talked about before she passed away. And that book is it's such an iconic book for a reason. If you go back, and I hope people will, I think they're they're reissuing it. There's a reissue right about to come out. If you reread that book, you know, Mary's Mysteries kind of became known as a Mary Higgins Clark mystery, but without really looking back to the origin of it, which is Where Are the Children, that book has children in peril. It has an unreliable, potentially unreliable narrator. It has a gaslighting husband. It has some really kind of hints of dark things, um, danger, danger. The Danger to Children is kind of the worst kind. And it's a really kind of eerie, dark book and danger close to home, right? And it has, it's all the DNA is there for modern psychological suspense. Like there's no, there's no Gone Girl without Where the Children. And so to be able to write a book that it's basically the children in that book, Where Are They Now?, the setup for the book to be able to revisit all of those themes that Mary you know, kind of she was a trailblazer in that area and to be able to write a book that's kind of an homage to all of that is is pretty special so I'm excited about it
0: that's exciting the, the,
1: that'll be out in about a year and then I'm working on my next standalone as well which is yeah. A book
0: about friends go on trip and things go wrong. I'll say that. <laughs> wow, in your daily life, I, like it must be a miracle when anything actually goes according to plan. I feel like, <laughs> right? Like when it, when an open house is just an open house and nothing goes wrong, right? Because there's always the potential, you know, the what ifs and all of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, my friends. Um, what were you doing? Oh, the ideal for my new book was when my friends and I were on vacation and something happened, and I was kind of like they saw me like in lava land and they're like, they'll know my friends all know, like Alifair's working now. You and I can continue to have our charcuterie, but she's, (laughs) uh, she's doing something over there. The wheels are turning. And they were like, like, we saw the car ride home. They were like, what were you doing there? Like, and I'm like typing notes into my phone. And I was like, so what if instead of doing what we just did, this did happen instead. And they're like, you just did that. Like, to our vacation. Like that's what just happened. (laughs) I was like, sorry. (laughs) It's a really good idea though.
0: (laughs) Where are your best girlfriends from? Like what point of life or how did you meet them?
1: Well, one of my uh, best friends is the Dean of Howard Law School. And she and I were um, colleagues at Hofstra when she first started her teaching career. And then she lateraled over to the University of South Carolina. And on one of her trips to visit her, I met one of the other professors down there. So we always, we take an annual girlfriend trip, the three of us.
0: So that's nice. Yeah. I I usually take a an annual girls trip with like six girlfriends from college, but um we haven't done it in so long and they're actually all coming for dinner tonight from various oh, places. Fun. So at least we have that. Yeah. I know. I'm excited.
1: <laughs> yeah. The three of us, that's so funny. The three of us are getting together um, in DC this weekend. I'm leaving. I'm leaving on Friday. So. Aww, <laughs> nice fun. reunions with the girls. pandemic.
0: Pandemic has not how been fun. good for making time for friends. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: I mean, yes. In person. In person, but that's what I mean. Yes, it's my long-distance friends. It actually made room in our schedules where, you know, we would never just hop on and, I don't, we didn't even know what Zoom was, right? But we right. would hop on the phone and like talk for two hours. And, you know, we were having weekly Zoom gatherings, you know, and pulling other people in. So did you see the there was a New York Times article about like when does when does the group chat end or something that everybody who was kind of like getting through the pandemic with like constant like group chats or text threads or zoom parties. Like people are starting to drop out and I'm like, no, I don't want to drop out. People are important to me.
0: That's true. Yeah. We just had a zoom like two weeks ago or something. I don't know. Maybe they'll just gradually sputter. And when you're not hanging with friends or working, like what do you like to do? And especially in the Hamptons, do you have any go-to spots that you love? We go to a lot of
1: restaurants. I mean, they're kind of the, the, the typical places you would go, but we like, we, Increasingly, we wind up at Rowdy Hall a lot, Coche Commodore. We like the bar at the palm. Weekends in the summer, we hide. We call yep. it hiding at home. <laughs> we, we go to a lot of house parties. We host a lot of house parties, hang out at the beach, go to sunset. And then in terms of my, my personal hobbies, I actually golf, which people find very oh. surprising. But I like to golf. I like to exercise. I don't look like I like to exercise, but I do. <laughs> and but I love to cook. <laughs> so those
0: two balance each other out. So I cook a lot. I'm looking forward to cooking this weekend so that's awesome. Boring. Kind of Not boring. boring <laughs> I like, I, I sort of like golf. I can do it. I'm really good at drives. And then I like lose interest. I'm like, okay. how far can I hit it? And then I'm like, that's oh. that's hard. That's my favorite. I like that. Okay. But well, I thought I, at first
1: you were to say you were good at driving the golf cart.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm probably better at driving the golf ball than the golf cart. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're good
1: off. You're good off the tee.
0: Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I'm, it's the second shot. That's the, the hard one. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: the beautiful drive. And then it's like,
0: Oh, <laughs> well then I like get in my head too much. Cause I'm like, Oh no, I missed this one. Now I miss this next one. And now I can't get my score back. Like yeah, it's yeah. too high. So then I stopped it's counting. A frustrating. I don't know. It's, it's a very my, it's, frustrating game. I don't have the yeah. mental bandwidth. <laughs> I don't have the mental toughness for golf. I think it's the problem, but anyway. All right. Well, this was so nice to get to know you and congratulations on find me. So cool. And hope to uh, see you in person sometime. You too. Yes. That would be fun. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zivi Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show.